the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. So good evening, it's good to see you all. Um, so we're in the series on Esther, and first of all, before Michelle comes to read, I want to suggest that apologetics um, is this branch of Christian theology that aims to defend Christianity. And I think I used to think the main audience for apologetics was non-believers, non-Christians. But increasingly as I go on, I think apologetics um, is for Christians. And the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093, he was um, Anselm, and he had his motto, faith-seeking understanding. And by that he meant that we should all have an active love of God that is seeking a deeper knowledge of God. Faith and understanding sit together. And I'm sure you'll join me in thanking all of the speakers in this series for strengthening our love of God and for deepening our understanding. So, Michelle, would you like to come and read from Esther chapter 8 through to chapter 9, verse 18? Okay, so reading from the beginning of chapter 8 in Esther. The king's edict on behalf of the Jews. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had now told her he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, And if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, 
sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridae, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. 
and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Thank you, Michelle. What a marathon reading that was. Fantastic. Um, So, we've learned things are going well for the Jews in the royal court. Uh, Power has passed to Mordecai. He's become the second in command of the empire, and he has the king's signet ring as a sign of his authority. What a turnaround. And Esther's position has also been consolidated as queen within the empire. Her identity as a Jew and her loyalty to the Jewish people has received the king's approval. But the Jews throughout the empire are in trouble. They've got this death sentence hanging over their head. The enemies throughout the empire are ready to attack. The Jews are facing a type of violence that's direct and personal. And Haman, the enemy, is dead, but his evil work is enduring. This much we know. And so we come to the first reality that touches with our experience in the modern world, the reality of racism and violence. Now, unless we've experienced racial abuse firsthand, it's probably impossible for us to truly empathise with the Jewish experience under the oppression of empire. Being on the end of racial hatred is the day-to-day experience for many in our world. And it was certainly the day-to-day experience for the Jews in the Persian Empire. And now, of course, genocide is on the horizon. We've learned in the story that Xerxes' edict can't be reversed. So Mordecai and Esther have to come up with a countermeasure that will save the people. So a second edict is written that will apply on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. That will counter this threat. Now, it's a really clever move, and it's probably the only option they have available to them. Now, the second edict is found in Esther chapter 8, verse 11. Let's just remind ourselves of it. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. So this allows the Jews to defend themselves. The wording is almost the same as the first edict with one crucial difference. The first edict named all the Jews. In other words, it was racially discriminating, whereas the second edict, in contrast, does not target a specific group, 
and that's important. So the Jews were attacked and they take their stand and they kill 500 men in the city, including the 10 sons of Haman. And the next day they kill a further 300. And then we have this report of the killing of 75,000 in the provinces. And I wonder how you interpret this Jewish response. Most Christian commentaries that I've read um, suggest this is legitimate self-defence. It's about restoring the balance of power and enabling the Jewish people to fight off any attacks as a result of the first edict. But historically, Christian commentators have not been so sympathetic. For example, Martin Luther, the influential 16th century Protestant theologian, in his early writings, Luther was really sympathetic to the Jews. He he was very sympathetic for Esther and Mordecai, comparing them to Christ, because they had risked their lives to save the Jewish people. But 20 years on, in 1543, he wrote a text entitled On Jews and Their Lies, and with reluctance I quote Luther. He wrote, And all their hearts, uneasy sighing, longing and hoping, go in the direction that one day they wish to deal with us Gentiles as they dealt with the Gentiles in the time of Esther in Persia. Oh, how much they love the book of Esther, which so well fits with their bloodthirsty, vengeful, murderous lust and hope. There is no nation that is so bloodthirsty and vengeful under the sun than those who think they are God's people, that they must slay the pagans and suppress them. What a horrible quote. Martin Luther ended his life as an anti-Semite. His reforming tactics were ineffective with Jewish believers, and he became increasingly angry throughout his life as it went on. And the root of the problem, of course, was not Luther's faith. It was a problem of his understanding of faith. Evangelism without love fails in its witness to Jesus, the God who is love. And we will come back to that theme of love and evangelism at the end of the talk. Luther's life certainly serves as a warning to us. Over time, we can become angry and frustrated with people who are different to us. Our attitudes harden and our speech becomes bitter. And that means we're not far from violence. Racism is just one of a number of forms our hardness of heart can take. There is a long list of rabbit holes we can fall down. Homophobia, xenophobia, sexism, ableism, ageism, classism. Now, if you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, the story that challenges racial prejudice, we remember the Samaritan helped a person from a different ethnic group. He reached across racial boundaries to show mercy to the other. The radical inclusive Jesus who told stories about Good Samaritans stands in contrast to the Holocaust in the 20th century in which six million Jews were murdered. The Nazis believed in salvation by race, not by grace. 
And at the time, of course, the German Lutheran Church professed salvation by grace alone. And we have some outstanding figures in the Lutheran Church who resisted the Nazi propaganda. Figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller. However, we have to ask ourselves, would the anti-Semitism of the Nazi Holocaust have arisen without the anti-Semitism of Martin Luther and the church in the Middle Ages? Just to give you an example, in the 1930s, various propagandists tried to claim Martin Luther as a champion for their Nazi propaganda. Richard Krauss famously um, rallied, or infamously, I should say, rallied 20,000 Christians and urged them to eliminate the Old Testament from religious instruction and expunge Jews from their congregations. The church has much to repent of in relation to our misunderstanding of the relationship between Gentile and Jew in Christ. The Apostle Paul, who was a Jew himself, reminds Gentile Christians to be humble in their relationship to to his fellow Jews. Paul wrote the book of Romans to specifically address the Jewish-Gentile racial tensions that had arisen in the church. Romans chapter 11 In that chapter, Paul speaks directly to Gentiles who were leaning towards anti-Semitism. And reading from verse 17, he says this. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Salvation is in Christ, and there is a new covenant through his blood. But Gentiles, like myself, should remember that Jesus was a Jew and miraculously fulfilled the purpose that Israel was destined to fulfil. And Paul continues in Romans chapter 11, verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, meaning the Jews, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus and it flows from the Jewish people to bless the Gentiles and in return the Gentiles bless the Jewish people. This is the language of family and mutual dependence on God. So my first point this evening is that there's no place for anti-Semitism or anti-Gentilism in the New Testament church. And by extension, there's no place for any kind of racism in the church. So that's my first point this evening. And I'm sure you can think of many verses in scripture that support that view. 
So now let's turn to think about the meaning of violence in the story of Esther. And here I'm in trouble because I honestly haven't got a clue what to say to you tonight. Um, I know what to make of this. It's really complicated. And I should say that I've got so many different viewpoints. I'm struggling to find a path through them. But I've reflected that might not be a bad thing. And I was reading an interview with theologian Miroslav Volf, who has written extensively about violence and religion. And this is what Volf says. My sense is that when things go wrong with religion is when one practices what I like to call thin religion, which I distinguish from thick religion. It's religiosity reduced to a formula. It's religiosity reduced to a single symbolic gesture. And once you reduce religion to that, for instance, Christian faith, what happens is that you can then project everything that you want onto that. So you believe in one God who is one, who is all-powerful and who is also for you, and then suddenly you've got this immense servant of yours to do all the dirty work that you need to be done and for yourself to feel good as that has happened. Now he's writing that in the context of reflecting on Christian violence in his home Croatia. Thick Christianity um, may sound a bit odd, but I would suggest it's marked by plural perspectives on scripture. Thick Christianity is where we value each other's life experiences. Thick Christianity is about listening and reflecting not just listening to Christian conversation now, but to the conversation down the ages. Those worshipping in a thick context are unlikely to be seduced by simplistic reasoning and false prophets. And they will often recognise that their favourite preachers have blind spots and theologians called right are not always right. That's my one attempt at a joke this evening. So I'm glad you laughed, but very kind. So regardless of all of that, the violence in Esther makes us uncomfortable. The Hebrew word for revenge is used in Esther 8, verse 13. And in Esther 9, verse 5, it says the Jews did what they pleased to those who hated them. And finally, what are we to make of Esther's request for a third edict and a second day of killing in Susa? Was this excessive or was it necessary? And then there's the impaling of Haman's ten sons, which was a fairly standard practice in the ancient world to shame those who'd lost in battle. Um, But perhaps our recoil from these practices reveal how distant we are from the bloody realities of geopolitics in the time of Esther, but also in our own time. Some recent Jewish commentators, like Elsie Stern, have argued that Esther is a farce and should be read as such. Rather than trying to emulate the characters in Esther, she argues that the absurdity of the story serves the purpose of refocusing readers on what is distinctly Jewish. She notes that the heroes do not obey the law of God revealed in the Torah. Instead, they obey Persian law. For example, Mordecai should have married Esther 
in keeping with Jewish law, but instead he adopts her as his daughter. The heroes do not pray to God, nor do they obey Jewish traditions. In fact, there is nothing distinctive about the Jews in the story, which means that something's wrong. Now, some Jewish commentators I've read on Esther much prefer the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Daniel that draw sharp distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Particularly the book of Ezra with its rooting out of mixed race marriages, obedience to the Torah and focus on ritual purity. And this was true of the Qumran sect at the time of Jesus. Um, Their scrolls contain all the other books of the Hebrew scriptures, but not Esther. I think when our identity is threatened, we often feel a strong impulse to draw boundaries between ourselves and others. Um, For example, we're never more British than when we're criticising the French. Historically, of course, that's because Britain was a Protestant country and France was a Catholic country, and sadly the two countries were often at war. Um, and therefore uh, the butt of many uh, jokes were formed around that. Now, Elsie argues that Esther was written by Jews living in Jerusalem who were critical of those Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem. As an observant Jew, you were supposed to read Esther and shake your head because you knew better. You would laugh at the irony and the absurdity of the story, And so they would avoid having to deal with the violence because Esther isn't approving of historical events. It's criticising them. This is one way to read Esther. And as Christians, I think we could take Elsie's viewpoint and reflect upon why we should expect God to show up if we are not being distinctive as salt and light in our world. And maybe we would want to call people to be more distinctive on their front lines. But I want to go in a different direction and suggest an alternative, which is perhaps more traditional in terms of interpreting Esther. It's always good to have a choice, I think. Um, So reflecting on the violence in Esther, we note there's no mention of women or children being killed by the Jews, nor is there mention of, of plunder. And the violence is limited in duration, and it's limited in its scope. Now, this is not how violence normally plays out in history. So there must be something missing here. Perhaps what we're missing is God. And as Nick and Megan mentioned in their talks, the name of God is noticeably absent from the story of Esther. So let's remind ourselves of Esther chapter 9 and verse 2 says this, the Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Now this phrase, no one could withstand them, is found in the book of Joshua, where God is revealed as the one who fights for Israel. Let's have a look at that. Joshua 21, verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And Joshua 23, 9 to 11. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. 
One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. So Jews reading the story of Esther would know that their successful defence could only have been achieved by the power of God. It's only when God fights that violence has a holy purpose. And the evidence that this was God's work is the outcome. Um, In Esther chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, we learn that after the violence, the Jews rested. God's intervention brings rest for the people. The Jews in the province rested on the 14th day of Adar, and the Jews in Susa rested on the 15th day. And this is how God's intervention is presented in Joshua 23, verse 1, where God gave Israel rest from their enemies. The Bible never glorifies violence, but it does reveal its purpose, which is to restore creation to a state of order, a state of peace and a state of rest. This is why human violence outside of the command of God is condemned in the Bible, because it leads to disorder and endless cycles of revenge. Now, Christian theologian Thomas Fetzel warns us not to spiritualise violence in the Old Testament. So, for example, we might argue that Esther is to be read as a spiritual story that has no roots in real history, real events, which means that we don't have to confront the reality of violence. Alternatively, we might approve of violence in the Hebrew scriptures when it's carried out through natural events like earthquakes or plagues, or maybe when the Egyptians drowned in the sea. But we're not so comfortable when we see God exercising violence through the Jewish people. And perhaps this is because Christians struggle to believe that God's divine presence can be manifested through the people of God in the Hebrew scriptures. We're okay with earthquakes, but Jewish people with swords we find more difficult. Now, Vetzel makes the point that God's promises to Israel are forever promises, and the survival of the Jewish people is part of God's plan to restore the cosmos. And so we misread scripture if we deny Jews the right of survival. And we do this if we insist that the church has replaced Israel and God no longer has a plan for the survival of the Jewish people. So reflecting back on Romans chapter 11, Wetzel makes the argument that the Gentile church is grafted into the root of Israel. And so if the root perishes, God will not be able to fulfil his promises. And of course, God always fulfils his promises and therefore the Jewish people persisted and survived. So all this leaves me with questions, a lot of questions. As a Christian, um, I believe I'm called to non-violence. Matthew chapter 5, um, Sermon on the Mount. You know, love your enemies, work for peace, turn the other cheek. Um, but I have found it very helpful to think about Esther from a Jewish point of view and to consider what we can learn from the Hebrew scriptures about survival in a world that's hostile to our witness to Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to say next, I'm drawing on the work of Reverend Dr. Francisco Javier Ruiz Ortiz, not so easy to say. Um, He's a Catholic priest and he wrote a book about violence in, in Esther. 
And he, he notes there are several weapons that are used in Esther. And I think these weapons could be used in non-violent ways. And he says this. The ultimate weapon is the story itself. When the Jews are under oppression, their only defence is laughter and the ridicule of the established power. Through fun and satire, the Jewish people are encouraged to trust God and be faithful to the community. When other realities of the presence of God are no longer present, that is, the Davidic king, the promised land and the temple, God is living among a people that are faithful to each other. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God living among a people, faithful to each other. Salvation is ultimately attained by those who stand together to defend themselves. The story of Esther reveals that God is very much present for a people in exile. And Esther encourages us to see that the silence of God all around us is not the reality. As Toby reminded us last week, when God is not visible to us, the reality is that God is holding us in the palms of his hand. Francisco Javier describes the ultimate weapon is a story in which the continuation of God's people is a sign of God's presence in our world. And then he points out to these other weapons of non-violence, and we're going to just have a look at those. I've got a list. Um, First, there is the encouragement to respect the rule of law and legal process. Esther and Mordecai work within the boundaries of the Persian law, and this has the effect of protecting the vulnerable and limiting the violence. The rule of law, of course, is vital for peace building. When the Ukraine-Russia war is over, it will be vital to rebuild institutions to create peace. We will need um, institutions, of course, to bring perpetrators of crime to justice on both sides. Esther echoes Paul's writing in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, where he argues that everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. There is a God-given purpose for secular power. And upholding the rule of law and providing justice is a major one. So just to be clear, the violence in Esther is constrained by the law, which means it is contained. Second point is silence. Um, Silence is a vital weapon for people in exile. In chapter 5, Esther conceals her identity and she conceals her plans when inviting the king and Haman to two banquets. Her withholding of information is part of God's plan for the salvation of his people. And so we need to think carefully about when to withhold information and conceal our, 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 can't speak, our identity. I've done too much lecturing this week, that's a problem. Third, we've learned the importance of speech. And speaking out for justice, in chapter 8, verse 3, we find Esther pleading with the king. She is respectful of the king and uses phrases like, if it pleases the king. She's also skillful in presenting her plea to the king. Rather than telling him what to do, in verse 6, she presents her case in the form of a question. 
how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? And there's a second question. How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? In a time of empire, we can perhaps direct the conversation, not through controlling what those in power say, but by steering the conversation onto those topics that we wish to be discussed. And this goes back to Richard's talk on the nature of power earlier in the series and the ways in which power is understood. Controlling what is on the agenda is a major part of how Christians can exercise influence. So God can work through our silence and through our speech. And then there's patience. There are long gaps in the story of Esther, as Andrew demonstrated in his timeline last week. Patience ultimately wins the victory. While we wait as God's people, Esther teaches us that our best defence is to laugh and ridicule the established powers. And I think Esther would approve of TV shows like um, Have I Got News For You? Because I think they find another way of rejecting the injustices of the powers that be. And finally, there's solidarity. Um, When the presence of God is no longer available through a Davidic king, the promised land and the temple, God is present among a people that are faithful to each other, even though they're scattered geographically. And when Saz preached a few weeks ago, she magnified the importance of solidarity, especially when we are facing persecution. We see that in Esther. We see it in the Acts of the Apostles and the common life of the early church. And we see it in Paul's letters. And ultimately, we see it in Christ's solidarity with us on the cross. The Jewish Messiah that brings us all to salvation, whether they're part of the root or the branch, Jesus saves. So I invite you to give thanks to God and give thanks for the fellowship you share with each other this evening. Maybe just take a moment before you leave to encourage each other. And finally, in this marathon talk, we get to the end. Um, I want to say something about forced conversion. Um, I'm coming back to that theme of love and evangelism I mentioned. In Esther 8, verse 17, we note that the side effect of the Jewish rise to power was the conversion of people to Judaism because of their fear of the Jews. Now, there's always a downside when we align the power of the political state with the institutions of God's people. Reviewing the last 1,400 years of Christian entanglement with empire, we can see many negative outcomes. The forced conversion of peoples through colonial European expansion has been one terrible outcome of the church-state relationship. Or consider the moral failures of the modern state of Israel since 1948, where we've seen systematic discrimination against Christian and Muslim Arabs. We know what Jesus would say about Israel's apartheid against the Palestinians when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Christians must stand with Christ against today's temples of empire. I get emotional when things I think are true. It's not, it's not that I'm upset. Um, 
We must stand against today's temples of empire, against governments that steal land and destroy creation. Christians must stand against the Hamans of this world, it's clear. There are so many people in our world who struggle to experience the love of God because of their encounter with misguided zealousness. Maybe they have encountered a fundamentalist person or fundamentalist political state that demands confession of a thin version of religion or membership of their community as a condition of membership of their community. And this evening, we remember that God is love. And I leave you tonight with the words of 1 John 4, verses 18 onwards. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So my prayer this evening is for all those who are afraid, all those who have experienced misguided zealousness. My prayer is that you would encounter the healing love of God. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. I just pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this immensely difficult book, Esther. We thank you that it raises questions. And Lord, as we prayed at the start, would you shape those questions into action in our lives? And Lord, if we have been hurt by misguided zealousness, we ask that you bring your healing. In Jesus' name, amen.